Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that the others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Thank you, Daniel, for reading. Well, if you don't know me, uh, my name's Nathan Walters. Um, I've been a member here for about a decade now. Um, I'm also the director of Christian Challenge. We're a ministry at the University of Delaware. So I've gone through, like probably most of you, um, 13 years of grade school. I didn't do preschool, but um, got kindergarten and the rest in. Um, I went through five years of college to get my degree. Um, Don't ask me about the fifth year. Um, And then I had six years or so on and off of seminary to get my master's of divinity. And I feel like somewhere along the process of getting my MDiv, I started to realize that most of these papers I'm writing um, were just compiled thoughts of others that I was putting into my own words. Kind of had this realization like, do I even have an original thought? Um, Am I coming up with any of this? Like you start to think like, Am I, like, unintentionally plagiarizing? Like, where did this thought come from? Um, I think if you write enough papers in a setting like that, um, you start to kind of have these thoughts and realize, like, man, I don't even know where I picked up this phrase or this habit from. If you really think about many of the things that you say that you do on a daily basis, most of them are learned. Most of them are picked up from those that you spend the most time around the things you watch the most, the things you read the most. I think so much so that it can be hard to determine what's learned, what's original. And I don't think this is a bad thing. I don't say this to like bash the education system, like all we're doing is regurgitating things. Um, That's what what we do. This is how we're designed. This is how we're wired, how we learn, how we grow. What we read, who we spend time with, who we revere— This is what our lives tend to look like. We learn by example. And I think in essence, this is actually what it means to be a Christian. This is why Jesus talks about being a follower of Christ, being a disciple of Christ. We're looking at his example. We're modeling our lives in that way. And this is what happens in our text today. Paul in this passage, is giving us three examples to follow when it comes to sacrificial giving toward those who are in need. 
If you were here last week, um, Evan set us up, laid down some context for our passage, and I want to do that briefly before we jump into it, so we're kind of up to speed about where we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So in this passage, Paul is writing a letter, 2 Corinthians is a letter, to the church at Corinth, and at the start of chapter 8, he's addressing this collection among these saints in Corinth. He's referencing this collection um, from previous letters, and it seems like the primary purpose of this collection is to meet the needs of Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem. Back in 1 Corinthians, which was written about a year before 2 Corinthians, Paul is encouraging these believers when they gather each week, set aside some money for this collection. He wasn't intending to show up and ask for a ton of money from the church at Corinth to give aid to these people in Jerusalem. Um, He wanted to avoid that, so he was strategizing long-term. He was saying, hey, why don't you every week put this aside so by the time I get there, there will be enough to meet these needs rather than you giving it all at once. So last week, um, Evan walked through the beginning of this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And a lot of what was highlighted was that our generosity as believers should be founded on grace. That giving that is grounded in the gospel is not giving out of obligation, but purely out of grace. And this is exactly where Paul picks up in verse 8. In many ways, verse 8 is a transition verse, is a summary of what was said before. So he says this, he says, I say all of this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So the first example we see set up here in our passage is the example of these Macedonian Christians. When he says others in verse 8, he's referring to these believers who were in Macedonia. At the beginning of this passage, Paul tells the church at Corinth about their generous giving. He's setting up these Macedonians as people to look at and learn from for the church at Corinth. And these believers, they were in extreme poverty, which is how Paul frames them. But he's saying despite their extreme poverty, or their extreme poverty they were generous. After explaining how they were giving, he steps back in this passage and explains himself. And I think the first words here are very important. He clarifies, I'm not saying this as a command. This is an encouragement, not a command. And I think this statement is so important to understanding giving and generosity within the church. This was the point of the entire sermon that Evan gave covering the first seven seven verses last week. Paul is not commanding them to give. He's encouraging them to give. And if you read Paul's letters, he commands a lot of things. There are many commands throughout his letters that he's telling the church, you need to be doing this, you need to be doing this other thing. But he isn't bringing up this generosity of the Macedonians as a guilt trip, as something to command them. Rather, it's encouraging. I think often when we hear about giving talked about within the church, it can be viewed as a guilt trip. Like, hey, you're, you're showing up here. You're here this morning. You're sitting in a seat. Um, the seat you're sitting in was not free. It was not donated. Um, you hear the AC running. The lights are on right now. Um, those, those cost money. There's going to be a bill at the end of the month. So if you're coming here, if you're consuming, um, it can 
It can come across as, well, you need to drop a little on the plate on your way out. Help us pay the power bill. Um, there's going to be an AC unit that kicks this summer. There always is. Um, why, don't, why, don't you, why don't you pitch in? That can often be the messaging that's perceived when we talk about giving. I distinctly remember um, a sermon that I heard growing up, and being fair, this wasn't at this church, just to clarify. Um, I believe this was at some event that I was at with youth group or whatever it was. Um, but the person who was preaching was talking about giving, um, and I distinctly remember him saying, hey, if you don't give, God's going to get it somehow. He's going to put holes in your pockets. Um, if you don't give, you're going to go home, and your water heater's going to break down, and you're going to have to spend money on that. Um, so you might as well just give it now because God's going to get it one way or the other. This isn't the type of giving that Paul is promoting. He's not saying this as a guilt trip. He clarifies it. He says, I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, he's saying, follow their example. He's saying, look at these Macedonian Christians. They are objectively poor, yet they are generous with what they have. And it's producing a fruit of great joy. This is reminiscent of the story of the widow um, that's given in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read the story for us. It's found in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, only worth a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. This points us to the principle that the Lord looks at the heart of the giver. He's not impressed with you skimming off the top to increase your self-righteousness. Rather, he is honored by those who give from the heart. Now, I also think he would not be impressed by you giving every cent that you had out of some form of pride of, look at me, I gave everything. I don't think that's the point of the story either. I think it does mean you should give out of your joy, not just extra money that you come across. So after all this talk of grace, after this clarification of his early example that he gave of the Macedonians, Paul brings us back to Jesus. He says this in verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is Paul bringing us to the example of Christ. A few chapters back in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes reference to this exact concept, the grace of Christ offering himself. And I believe in order to kind of fully understand this concept, this analogy, this example, we first need to understand our human condition. You see, the key to this passage is reconciliation, being made right with God. Now, the concept of reconciliation, which is probably one that you're somewhat familiar with, um, implies that there was something that was good, there was something that was right, there was something that was ideal. Something happened where that thing was broken, and now it's being made right. It's being put back together. 
when I was thinking through this concept this week, um, it made me think of many families in our church who have been active in foster care in our state. Now, there are many things within the kind of idea of foster care that image the gospel that are the hands and feet of Christ. But I think one of them, and one that stands out the most to me, is this idea of reconciliation. The goal, if you, if you ask any family that's involved in foster care, um, the goal of foster care is reconciling. There was once something that was good and right, a loving, stable, caring, safe family, but then something went wrong. Something was broken, whether from the inside or the outside. And now these foster parents are aiming to care for these children while reconciliation occurs, while things are trying to be made right, put back together, made to what they were intended to be. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is look at our own relationships with the Lord, what once was, what was broken, and what's being put back together. And hopefully this will point us toward generosity and giving and how we are to model Christ in that. So we're going to begin with what once was. Um, If you're familiar with the story of the gospel, what once was, was perfect unity with God. From the beginning, we were created to be in union with God. If you go back to Genesis, um, if you read the beginning, God and man were created, or, or God created man, sorry, living God wasn't created. Don't, don't quote me on that. He's always existed. Um, God created man, and we live together with God in perfect peace and harmony. And in this context, we perfectly glorify God, and in turn, we're perfectly joyful in him. This is the ideal state. This is how things were intended to be. You were created originally with the intention of being in perfect harmony with the Lord. This is like when you spend an entire Saturday cleaning your house and you sit down at the end of the day and you're like, this is good. This is how things should be. Everything's in its place. You're in perfect harmony in your living room thinking, yes, this is perfect. But just a quick look at life around you will tell you this isn't the state that we are currently in. This is what once was, but things are not perfect. People get sick. We sin against each other to get what we want. We gossip about others to boost our own pride and ego. The living room is a wreck 24 hours later after you sit down and say, this is perfect, this is good. Now, I want to be clear when we talk through this. The problem with the world is not always the world. It's sometimes the world. It's sometimes the things going on outside of you. But I think what's important to getting this is The problem is you and I. The problem is internal. I think often when we talk about brokenness and the issues that plague us, we tend to make us victim number one in these circumstances. But in order to really see the problem, we need to be able to be honest with ourselves to see that our hearts are evil. So, this is the brokenness. This is where we start. Things were once perfect with God, but where we start is separation from God. We have looked at the world that God created and the way that he's governing the world and said, I can take care of this. I can do it myself. And in choosing to live life our own way, we put ourselves under the judgment of God. So there's now this gap. There's now this gap of holiness between us and the Lord. 
This is why throughout the Old Testament, you see the sacrificial system coming into play. People knew that there was distance between them and the Lord. They saw their sin. They recognized it. They recognized, man, this wasn't the way that things were intended to be. And by the system that was set up, they figured while sacrificing bulls and goats may close that gap, atone for sin, so that the punishment that was meant to be brought upon them might be brought upon this bull or upon this goat and that God might be pleased. But what becomes evident, and even the Lord himself says, is that it was never enough. It never could be enough. Now you likely don't sacrifice bulls and goats to atone for your sins. Um, I'm pretty sure there's not anyone here who does that anymore. But I wonder, what else do you do to close this gap? Maybe you're not really a church person, but you're here this morning. Maybe you have been coming for a while and you're here this morning and this is part of your thought process. Maybe you sense things aren't right with God. My life isn't lining up to what I'm seeing where it should be. You're seeing the disconnect, the distance between how you're living and how you feel like God would have you to live. And maybe you're thinking, well, this is step number one. Maybe I show up to church If I put forth some effort, I can close that gap. Maybe for you, it's Bible reading, prayer, spiritual disciplines. You figure, well, if if I'm faithful in reading the word, it'll bring me a little closer to the Lord and I can close that gap that I sense. Maybe it's the way you live your life with people who aren't kind to you. Well, if if I return their evil for kindness, it'll close that gap between me and the Lord. Maybe it's what our passage touches on this morning. Maybe it's your giving, your generosity. You figure, well, my, my, the things I'm doing don't quite line up. The way I'm living my life doesn't quite line up. But if I write a check every week, maybe God will be more pleased with me. We all sense that something isn't right, that something is wrong, that there is a God, that he's holy, and we are not. And our human inclination, as is my inclination when I run into many problems throughout my week, is... I can fix this. If I do enough, if I change enough things, if I make enough checklists and resolution, I can make this right. But the answer Paul gives here is a reference back to earlier in his letter. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So if some of the examples I gave resonated with you, If you feel like, oh, he just called me out for coming to church trying to please God, I would encourage you, lean on Christ. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you took the step to come to church. I'm glad that that's your intention. But the Lord isn't pleased by you sitting in a seat and listening to me talk. He's pleased by you having faith in him. And that route is so much more freeing than thinking you have to hit these certain steps to make him love you because he already loves you and cares for you enough that we see in this passage that he sent Christ to die for you in order to reconcile you 
to himself. There wasn't some kind of effort that you put forward here. It wasn't because you're an amazing person who works really hard and does all these amazing things. It's because he created you, he values you, and he created you with the intention that you would live eternally with him. So this brings us to where Christ brings us, which is reconciliation, which is brought back to the Lord. Christ came, he lived a perfect life, and as he lived, he was moving toward his death, a death that would reconcile all of mankind to God. Because in his death, he took upon himself the punishment for the sin of the world so that we could be one with God, we could be reconciled to him. And in his resurrection, he defeated death so that those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus could live eternally with him. So with all of this in mind, with this kind of grand plan of reconciliation that's going on, let's look back at verse 9. How is Paul using this example of the gospel to drive us to generosity? In this passage, Christ has all the fullness of God. He's not in need. He was spiritually rich. But Paul says, for our sake, he made himself poor. In another letter, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul says that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And he did this so that by his spiritual poverty, we may experience the greatest spiritual wealth, which is eternity with him. So he's using this analogy to tell the Corinthian believers, just as Christ sacrificed his spiritual wealth for the spiritual poor, a.k.a. you and I, you should also sacrifice your physical wealth for the physical poor. And you ought to do this with the attitude of Jesus. That's following the example of Christ. Not just what he did, but the attitude that he had, which was one of humility and one of genuine love. And to bring it back to even the verse before, just as Christ has no obligation to come and sacrifice himself, so you have no obligation to give, but rather it ought to be done out of genuine love. So, so far in this passage, we've seen the example of both the Macedonian believers who gave sacrificially and Christ, who I would say was the ultimate example of sacrificial giving. But now Paul moves on to another example. And this example doesn't necessarily highlight sacrificial giving, but I think rather answers a question that we are often inclined to ask here. How sacrificial do I need to be? How much is enough? Should I give a percentage, a set amount? And what about fairness among the church if we're all kind of giving differently? Paul lays it out like this, starting in verse 10. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, 
And whoever gathered little had no lack. So he starts this transition with an encouragement to finish where they started. As I mentioned before, about a year prior to this letter, Paul wrote them asking them to begin this collection for the saints of Jerusalem. So he's encouraging them, finish what you started, continue in this good work. And then in verse 12, he addresses this question of how much should I give? Paul is saying God sees our giving much differently than we do. I think when we think of giving, we typically think of a set amount, even if that's a percentage. Typically for us, we think of it in a set amount. And unless you kind of own a small business or your job situation is less stable, um, you likely expect the same paycheck each pay period, not some kind of proportion of whatever your company made that month. And even if you do own a small business or your income is less predictable, you are likely aiming toward a situation where you have a steady income. This is what we like. We like to know exactly what's going out each month, exactly what's coming in each month. This, this is how we think about money. It's comfortable. It's, it's easy to predict. But Paul doesn't set some kind of standard amount that each person must give. Rather, he says God knows the heart. The amount is acceptable according to what a person has. Go back to Jesus' treatment of the widow and her two coins. She was judged according to what she had as were the others who were given. They were judged according to what they had. And remember, Paul is speaking to Corinth, who relatively, especially to the Macedonians, had plenty to give. So he continues on, and he says, I'm not saying that those who have less should just not give, and the others pick up the slack, but rather, at the present time, you give out of your abundance, and at another time, they may give out of their abundance. There is no keeping of tabs within the kingdom. There will always be Christians who have needs. There will always be Christians who have more than they need. So Paul's command is give out of your abundance. Give today what you can give. Don't worry about tomorrow. This is consistent with the teaching of Jesus. We're always concerned about tomorrow and planning out for the future. That's good, and we should plan, and that's wise in many ways. But Paul's saying, worry about today. Give out of the abundance that you have so you can meet the needs that currently exist. And at the end of this passage, he references one final example. This is the third example he gives in our passage today. And that is the example of manna, of God's provision in the wilderness. This is the last verse here. He says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack So whenever you see, as it is written in the New Testament, you can be sure that this is referencing back to some story, some passage, maybe a prophecy in the Old Testament. And what we see here is a reference back to Exodus chapter 16. Now in this passage, the Israelites, who were um, God's chosen people at the time to bring forward the message of salvation to the nations, um, the Israelites are two and a half months out into their stint in the wilderness. They were previously in slavery in Egypt, and God, through Moses, freed them from slavery. And now Moses is leading them through the wilderness into the promised land. And things aren't going very well in the wilderness at this point in time. Um, it's, it's tough. It's hard. The people are grumbling. They're hungry. So hungry, in fact, that they're saying, hey, we, we kind of wish we were back in slavery 
you know, it was terrible, but at least we had food. Um, This is what they said to Moses and Aaron. They said, would it be that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt? They're super dramatic. We would rather be dead. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So you can imagine God being like, guys, I, I freed you out of slavery and you're complaining that you're hungry? But God doesn't do that. He hears the cries of his people even when they're grumbling toward him. And he responded to Moses and he says, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So the Lord provides for his people. He provides daily and even on the sixth day, he provides enough for the Sabbath so they don't go out and collect manna on the Sabbath day. And just as God promised, this happened. The need that God's people had was supernaturally met by him when they called out to him. And once it started happening, um, this this is what the command of the Lord was. He said this, gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whomever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now, God could have answered their cries in a much more stable way. He could have provided just a stockpile of food, um, built a big silo out there in the wilderness, filled it all the way with manna. They always knew it was there. Um, They knew exactly where they were going tomorrow. They know it's sitting there. He could have provided, maybe more practical, um, a flock of livestock that they could manage and slaughter for food as they see fit, that they always know it's there. But instead, he chose to provide literal daily bread. If they had too much or too little, Only what they needed would be there for the day, and tomorrow's food would come tomorrow. So Paul is taking this logic, he's taking this historical event that certainly these Corinthian believers would have been familiar with, and he's applying that logic to giving within the church. Whoever has much will have nothing left over, and whoever has little will have no lack. This, in Paul's opinion, is life within the body of Christ. Just like God provided manna to his people in Exodus, so he will still provide today. But the plan isn't rain down money from heaven. Um, I've never seen that happen. I have no reason to think that this is the Lord's intention here. I think his means, which Paul references pretty clearly, for providing today is through the generosity of his people toward one another. Now, when I was kind of thinking and praying through practical application for this text. Um, The application seemed pretty obvious. You can probably guess what it is. It's a very practical text. Um, You don't need a theology degree to read this passage and pull out the application of, we should be a generous people who generously meets one another's needs. But as I prayed through this more, I, I think there's a step we need to take to even get there. The, the kind of question I want 
to leave you all with this morning is, do you even know each other's needs? Now, yes, one application could this tech, for this text could be give more to our church or start giving. And yeah, I think that would be a great place to start. Your giving supports ministry that happens here. Um, but not only ministry that happens in terms of like someone preaching or running a children's program, um, your giving supports the needs of others. Um, we have funds set aside for benevolence, for church members who are in need. And if you have a need, you can call the church office. You can contact the leadership. You can reach out, and we have deacons. We have people in place who are specifically there and willing and joyfully wanting to meet your needs. But I often wonder, within a church body like ours, do we even know the needs that others have? How many people come in here week after week, sit with them like an arm's reach of many other people, and walk out without expressing their need to another? If the, if the believers that the collection is being brought together for in our passage today, um, if they never expressed their need to Paul, if they tried to keep it hidden, would there ever have been a way for the church at Corinth to even take up this collection? Pride should never drive us to keep our needs hidden because it not only perpetuates the need, it also deprives the giver of the joy of giving. But I don't want this to just fall on those who have unmet needs, who aren't saying anything. I also think this falls on those who have much to give, or as Paul says, those who have abundance. Are you seeking out needs within the church? Are you joyfully giving to those who are in need? Now, there are all kinds of opportunities to connect here at Ogletown. Um, You probably saw a lot of them like on the pre-service slides and you'll see them after service. Um, There's a men's breakfast this coming Sunday or this coming Saturday, not Sunday. Don't show up Sunday and expect breakfast. Um, There's, I think like four or five summer book studies for women that are gonna be starting up soon. Um, Sunday Bible studies happen every Sunday right before this service. Um, There are community groups that are open for you to join and these avenues don't exist just to add another church thing to your calendar. Um, I hope you don't join a book study this summer and just expect to show up, kind of learn a little bit of what's going on in the book, and then leave. Those are all great things. I think we should learn and grow in our faith through that. But these things also exist to help us grow closer as a community so that together we can follow the example of Christ. So, as we go out this morning, I want you to remember these three examples in this passage. The Macedonians showed us that generosity is still possible even when it feels like you have nothing or very little to give. Christ shows us that giving is sacrificial and should come from a heart of love, not obligation. And the story of the Israelites in the wilderness showed us that the Lord intends to care for you and meet your needs. And he intends to do that with those who are sitting around you, with the body of Christ. Would you pray together with me? Father, we will never give out of true love and compassion until we fully realize the love and compassion that you have shown us. 
So God, I pray this morning that you would remind us daily of the great love that Christ showed for us on the cross. God, I pray we wouldn't forget it. I pray it would be emphasized daily in the circles we in that Christ did this for us. Father, your word says that you chose us before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before you. That in love, you predestined us for adoption to yourself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will, so that your glorious grace would be praised. Lord, remind us of this love and let it be the love by which we orient our lives. For those of us who are in need, Lord, give us confidence and boldness to express that need. And God, for those who have abundance, give us love and compassion that causes us to joyfully and freely give. And Father, in all of this, I pray that we would look more like Jesus, both individually and as a people, and that we would reflect him well to a world that is longing for a love like this. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.